From the team behind the award-winning documentary, She, welcome to She Goes by Jane. I'm your host, author, and poet, Amy Baker. And I'm Vanessa Ciccarelli, photographer and independent filmmaker. At the end of this episode and every episode, we will be joined by a special guest who will read an original poem by Amy Baker about the women we're featuring. This episode features author and new media creator, Paige McKenzie. Hey, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. What do you know about Atlanta? I guess not a whole lot. I think I feel like I should know more, but I don't. Okay. So when I say like Atlanta bombing or Atlanta child murders, like nothing. Um, no, maybe maybe like the bombing, but not the child murders. Okay. Today we're going to talk about Mary Shotwell Little, who you've not heard about. I have not heard about her. No. Okay. So this is a fresh, fresh story for you. So her case is one of the biggest cases in Atlanta's history. Um, but today, her story is largely forgotten. And I really wanted to highlight her today so that we can bring this back up. And hopefully, maybe something connects with someone and they remember something they didn't before. So Mary was a young woman. She was 25. She met up with a friend out for dinner at a newly opened shopping complex. And they said goodbye at the end of their evening together, and Mary went missing from that point. Okay. So the last time she was seen was at that shopping mall? Not exactly. So we're, we're going to get into that because um, her story's a little complicated and twisty. But first, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Mary before that point. Okay. Uh, so she was born in 1940 kind of like a what sounds like a, a typical like middle class white working family in the south um, they lived in charlotte north carolina she was really active in her high school experience like she was in like beauty pageants and was her high school's mascot so she like literally wore a horse head and really? like yeah oh i like mary <laughs> yeah um, so she had like a Mustang head that she would put on. Millie she the Mustang. She fun. She does sound fun. Um, and she wanted to go to college. So she went to what is now known as the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, um, which was women's college at the time. And so she went to college there to become basically educated in like administrative and secretarial skills. Okay. Okay. Uh, she had a dream of moving to New York City. Have you ever wanted to move to New York City? No. No. <laughs> not personally. No. That's kind of outside my realm of anything comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so she really wanted to move to New York City, but her parents were like, hey, New York City has a lot of crime. And you know, there's like this perception of New York City as being like crime ridden and like... So scary. So scary. Yeah, Particularly that's... in the 1960s, mm -hmm. this like pervasive belief of... New York City is like not a place you would send your young yeah. daughter. So instead, they kind of compromised together and she moved from her home to Atlanta. Okay. And the parents thought that was safer than New York? Yeah. So at the time, like Atlanta was not the Atlanta we know today. It was much smaller, you know, kind of like a, a major city in the Southeast, but not quite like the Atlanta of now. Okay. Yeah. Atlanta had a huge growth spurt, and so she's moving there before that time. Okay. So still a quieter kind of city? 
acquire what we're saying. Yeah. Okay. Or like that's like their belief. Their it. belief. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she moved in with some roommates. She's working as a secretary. And that's kind of like where her her story like kicks off. While she's there, uh, she reconnects with a childhood friend. So she had previously lived in Georgia and her family had moved to North Carolina. And these two were classmates together. So this is where she meets Roy Little Jr. And they meet through mutual friends. And it's like they're going to get married. Okay. Yeah. So her childhood friend is the one who introduced them? So like he was her childhood friend. Oh, he was her childhood friend. Yeah. Oh, that's cute. Isn't it? It is. Yeah. So she, you know, like through 19, like, 1964 1965 like mary kept on returning to her hometown to be basically a bridesmaid in a ton of her friends weddings like which i think like says like a lot about who she was i think so yeah so she's she's bridesmaiding and then eventually she's having her own bridal showers uh and she gets married to to roy in september of 1965 She's in Atlanta still, married to her childhood sweetheart, and they both moved there separately and got together there. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So yeah. he's he's also young. He's in the Army Reserves. Um, he's also working in the banking industry. And that's, like, the start of their life together. And, like, six weeks after they get married, she goes missing. Six weeks? Six weeks. Oh, they barely even got to have a marriage. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. Okay, tell me more. Okay. So the the week that Mary goes missing, her husband is out of town on business. He's about like an hour and a half away. And, you know, they check in during the entire week that he's gone. So she's calling him in the evenings, they're chatting, and she's very excited that he's going to be home at the end of the week. Okay. So... One of the things that she does is she decides that she is going to go out to dinner with her friend Isla Stock. They work together. So she drives from her work at Citizens and Southern National Bank to Lenox Square. So Lenox Square is like what is like a massive shopping complex for the time. It's brand new. They're building it as like this popular destination. Their tagline is, see you there at Lenox Square. It's a happening place. So she goes there after work on a Thursday, and she then does some grocery shopping because she's buying groceries for a dinner party she's having over the weekend. She's going to have some friends down. Her husband's going to be back. They're going to have like a little dinner party at her house. She also buys a few other things at the shopping complex, With Isla, they also have dinner together at, like, a cafeteria there. Okay. So shopping and dinner. Shopping and dinner. Um, So they walk back towards the cars and, you know, say goodnight to each other because Mary says that she has to get home because she's got these, like, perishable groceries in her car. We've all been there. We've all been there. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So she's going to do that. Isla leaves. Everything seems fine. The next morning, Mary does not report to work. Okay. 
And, you know, one of the things um, that we're going to talk about kind of often in our podcast is like that actually is like one of the like first clues that something is wrong is when someone doesn't show up to work when they're otherwise very dependable. So her boss is immediately concerned because that is not like Mary at all. Not in her character. No. no. So he is calling everywhere. He gets in touch with her husband. Her husband says like, I don't know. I haven't heard from her. He calls her landlady who goes and checks on their apartment. The newspaper is out front. Like it doesn't look like anyone has been there. So it doesn't even look like she's gone home. No. Okay. Calls the police. Right. And they learn that she's gone to this shopping center the night before. They like scour the parking lot for her car. So there's not this like delay time between like realizing something's wrong and like getting police interested in this case they are immediately interested in this case i hear of so many where they're like they wait how come they didn't wait with her i think um she has some things going for her in terms of getting police interest she's a white woman okay newly married you know her boss is concerned her family members are concerned so you've got all these Comes like from like a good background a good background and- okay you can't see us, but we're like doing big air quotes around good background, yeah. right? Uh, so they're immediately invested in this case. They're looking for her. And at first there's nothing. They're not seeing anything. So in the afternoon, though, they locate her brand new 1965 comet around noon in the parking lot. Did they check earlier and it wasn't there and now it's there at noon? Yes. happened we don't know we don't know (laughs) we don't know okay so they look and they say it's not there and then later they say it is there okay so now i'm wondering is it overlooked did somebody pop it back into the parking lot right so this lennox square parking area like it is massive so like the whole like complex areas like i think 60 something acres so it's not like so it's easy to overlook maybe it is a car in a first search especially if other cars are parked there right but they speak to um the lennox square kind of like security people because it sounds like lennox square has its own like mall security team i bet they do right um and they say or the guy working there says there were no cars parked here overnight except for one vehicle and it was not hers okay so at Um, least they know that much yes and they do check out that other vehicle and it turns out it was like someone who was about to get their car repossessed and was hiding it at the shopping complex so nobody picked it up but (laughs) her car he says was not there okay so they take this car and they are immediately looking it over because there is blood inside okay so there's some blood on the windshield some on the seat her groceries are still in the back i was gonna ask that yeah they find her her stockings kind of rolled up in between the seats okay yeah yeah so they find like her undergarments she was wearing um a green patterned dress 
She was wearing like a London fog coat. She also had a handbag. Those items are not found. Okay. But the rest is in the car. Okay. So it's not looking good. It's not looking good. Um, in fact, Clinton Chafin, who's, you know, kind of leading this case and does so for a good long time until he retires much later, is at the time he said it looks very, very bad at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things they do in this early investigation is they look at the odometer on the car. So they're trying to determine what might have happened. Where has this car been okay. in that weird gap? So I had to ask some friends about this because, like, this kind of accounting has not been in my existence or probably in your existence. Right. Like, what is that? Like, how would they know what the number would have been? Right. Before she arrived at the shopping mall as opposed to yeah. when they found the car. Exactly. So apparently it was very common practice, particularly in early car owning days, to really be, like, tracking your mileage. Really? Yeah. That sounds, it just seems funny to us now, I think. Right. Yeah. Because, like, I can't tell you what the mileage is on my car. No, I couldn't. And I was just in it, like, 10 minutes ago, yeah. right? So they are able to determine, based on the mileage, that there's essentially 40 miles that are unaccounted for on the car. I'm finding this impressive that they can, like... This is what they've come up Figure with. that out, because I don't know if you could do that now. Like, I definitely could not. No. So what they decide is that, like, obviously, if the car's been driven 40 extra miles than it should have been. And they did this calculation also using, like, what her husband's last mileage check was. They shared this car. And calculating in how long it would have taken for her to drive from her apartment to work throughout the week. And then her apartment to the shopping center. And then, like, what's the excess miles left over? Okay. So they decide that there is 40, and so that must mean that the car was driven 20 miles in one direction and 20 miles back. So that creates a search radius for them. Okay. So we have a 20-mile radius. Yes. I mean, I would like to state that I've been thinking about this case a lot, and, like, this this does not account for, like, what if, what if she just like went for a joyride and right car like throughout the week exactly like, yeah and it doesn't mean 20 miles like i mean i guess the 20 miles would be the max right but like are there other factors you could right consider? so i mean but if she did do the joyride then that that radius would be shrunk so right. i guess it's it doesn't hurt to search within this 20, 20 miles, miles. So they start looking for her within a 20-mile zone of Lenox Square. They are searching streets. They're searching, like, backyards. They're asking hikers to, like, you know, look for her. They call in um, some, like, army reserves. They're asking pilots, like, can you keep an eye out on this area just to see if they can find Mary. So this is pretty extensive now. Like, Yes. Yeah. And this happens relatively quickly. Right. I just feel like like there's probably so many other women disappearing at Atlanta at the same time. And this kind of effort is probably not going there. Yeah, I have some thoughts on this, which we're definitely going to get to. Okay. Uh, so her family 
comes down from North Carolina to um, her apartment and they basically set up camp in her apartment with her husband and they're just all waiting for the phone to ring so they can find out some news. The initial theory is, of course, that she's been kidnapped. That seems like the... Yeah. From the car, that seems like the right direction, right? Right, because there's, you know, the blood in the car. The clothes. Yeah, the clothes. Um, There's some grass as well, like stuck to the blood. There's some stuff going on there. You know, they don't have like the DNA matching that they have now, but the blood type matches her blood type. So it's like seeming like it's her blood. But there's not a ton of blood. Later reports say it's like kind of the amount that you would get if you had like a bloody nose. Okay, so it's minimal blood. And it does just seem weird. If you were kidnapped, you wouldn't think that the kidnapper would return your car to where they found you. It's a little bit weird. That's weird. Like, because like, then the question is like, why? Why, yeah. why do that? It's like a very organized person wants to put things back in place. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> I don't know. You know, Roy, her husband, says stuff like, we have a lot of hope right now. The police think she's alive and we do too. All we want for her is to come back alive. He also says, this is like somewhat, not that any of these things are truly amusing, but this one struck me. He really focuses in on the fact that her purse is missing. Okay. He says, a pocketbook is a thing a woman wouldn't go without and no man would be caught with. What? Okay, I feel sorry for him because his wife is missing, but at the same time, that's a weird thing to say. Right? That's weird. Yes. Yes. So, like, a man can't carry a pocketbook and a woman's, like, whole life revolves around one. Right. Okay. Okay. So, you know, the the search in the first month is pretty intense and yields nothing. Like, there are plenty of people calling in constantly saying that they've seen her. And there's a few hoaxes involved that really, like, don't amount to anything. But it's, like, essentially people saying, like, we've seen a note from her or, or whatever. But, like, none of those pan out and Mary's still missing at some point, the police are like, we just, like, don't have much to go on. Right. Right. And the husband was definitely out of town? Yeah. So he was definitely out of town at this convention. Okay. Now, like, could he have, like, driven from the convention back, like, done something? I, yeah. But, like, that it does not seem to be the case here. Okay. And nobody's even thinking of him at this point. Right. Like... Okay. Yeah. One thing that does come out is that um, she seems to have received some roses in the weeks before her disappearance at her workplace. From her husband? Some say that the tag said secret admirer. Some say there was no tag, but, like, it definitely didn't seem like it was from her husband because reports are that she took the roses and threw them in the trash. Okay, and this was while they were married. So in that short, like, six weeks of marriage, somebody else sends her roses at work or somebody that she didn't want the roses from. Right. Okay. Yes. And on top of that, someone who is going to the bank for a job interview says that they overheard her on the phone talking to someone saying like you can't like i'm a married woman now 
Okay, so this seems like maybe there was something going on Possibly. for a while where somebody was after her, like in the in the mix. Okay, there. So there, there does seem to be like something happening with that. Okay, but they find the florist that the flowers came from. That person's like, I don't know who sent them. That lead does not pan out at all. Okay. It's like in the days before, like, tracing everybody on their cell phone. Right. Like, what was everyone doing? Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, Atlanta at this time, like, there is a lot going on. There are women who are reporting that there's someone who's been breaking into their apartments. So there's, like, this, like, overarching sense of fear, particularly for young, single working women living in the city which is a fear that we kind of see replicated over and over and over, right? Uh, so, you know, detectives are going like full on on this. They're working like 16 to 18 hour days, following up every lead, even the most like ridiculous ones, and there's nothing there. They do test the car for fingerprints um, and they get like 40 to 50 prints out of the car. Are they all hers and her husband's? So here's like the ridiculous thing. So. You know, if you look at the kind of the history of proper evidence collection, police should have been wearing gloves long before. This. So you don't think the police were wearing gloves that day when they found there her car in the parking there, lot? There are photos of them in the car without okay. gloves on. So they actually have to, like, compare it to, like, police to rule out that those aren't police officers' fingerprints all up in the car. They would have saved themselves so much time. I know, just put on some gloves. Right. Right. They oh. did have them. They just, yeah. Didn't do it. No. No. Now they have more work. Now they do. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 
have work. At this point, please start kind of grasping at straws. Okay. A, a crime against a woman in the Southeast, like, could not occur without police being like, maybe that's connected to the, the Mary Little case. So, I mean, like, uh, there's a, there's crimes happening in Houston, Texas, and they're, they're immediately there. Like, could this be connected? So there, anything that's a crime against a woman at this point now, they're connecting back to Mary. Right. And a lot of those cases only make the news because... Of Mary. Of Mary. Oh. Right. Okay. So we know about a bunch of those cases because they're publicized broadly as police are looking into it to see if they're connected to Mary. So then those don't lead anywhere. We're now months out. So we're into like November when the police get their first break in the case. Okay. And when did I, for, I forget which month she disappeared? October. October. Okay. So I guess not months, a month has yeah. passed before they, like, truly get a lead. So right now in our lives, we make a credit card purchase and it's immediately logged. Like, you could follow us throughout our everyday lives pretty easily by following our credit card receipts throughout right. the day, right? In the 1960s, it's a much slower process. So receipts are processed at a slower rate and they can't make that quicker for something like this well in this case they didn't know so let's okay. let me explain for a second so on the date of her disappearance she goes missing october 15th we know she's last seen at lenox square at 8 p.m so between midnight and 2 30 a.m her credit card is used um, at an ESO service station in Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh, okay. We've started off at Atlanta and we've ended up in her hometown. Okay. They um, only know about this because basically someone is like at their desk a month and a half later or so and sees like the bill come across their desk the like carbon okay. copy of the receipt that has her name on it. So that happens, so we say the, the same day or the day after? So this the, is like the night of. The night of. So there's the gas station. And how far away is that from where she is? It's a, a multi-hour drive. Right. So yeah. it's not like the capacity within that, the extra mileage of the car. No. So it would have been done without. Her car. Her car. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we're well. So okay. either she or somebody else is using her card in another state. Right. But we don't know about this or please don't know about this for like over a month later. Okay. What they do is they go and question the service station attendant, um, Daryl Thomas, who was there the night that the car pulled up. Back in the 1960s, full service gas stations were much more the thing. So someone would have come out and gassed up your car for you. So he says he does remember Mary Little. Okay. That she was in the passenger seat. That she was laying down. Okay. That there was blood on her head. And that there was a man 
in the driver's seat. Okay, so is this why he remembers it? But at the same time, he wasn't alarmed that night? He was alarmed. He was, okay. But he didn't tell anyone. Oh, okay. Great. Um, so it's it's also important to note that like this still happens today, this kind of like cultural response, but basically, particularly in the 1960s, like something like this, like seeing a bloody woman in a car with a man, the assumption is that's his wife and that whatever is going on is between the two of them. Mm, it's personal. It's personal. It's their business. Okay. So he's not going to do anything because that's between the two of them, but he remembered it because it's a, a a bloody woman. She didn't right. say anything, um, but she is the one who signed the credit card receipt because it was her card. Okay. So we know she was alive at that point. Yes. Not long after, they also find another credit card receipt from Raleigh, North Carolina, that was the next day. So October 15th into October 16th. Okay. And that was like used in the afternoon, also signed by her. Okay. So we've at least traced her through Charlotte, North Carolina into Raleigh, North Carolina. Okay. Yeah. That person also says they remember her, um, but, you know, now we're, we're a month out from those people seeing her. Right. Right. And was that the last time? That anyone saw her was the yeah signer. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the credit card also. That was the last of that. Yeah. Okay. So that's the last moment. And like you know, so please don't know what it's like a month old lead at that point. So their search area at the beginning it was just for nothing. It right. seems like we should be searching <laughs> further out. Yes. yes. Yeah. There have been a lot of theories over the time you know some of those are that she was kidnapped some that she like was kidnapped by like maybe a high school sweetheart or maybe someone else did it there's also like a lot of more contemporary theories i think as police got frustrated with the case and things were not resolving so they started to say things like maybe she just ran away on her own maybe she was unhappy in her marriage i feel like when you run away on your own you don't do it with blood on you right yeah right there's probably no violence involved um but they say like maybe she staged it to look like a a crime scene she could have but and then it seems like wouldn't one of those high school sweethearts or somebody else be missing as well? Right. Like, what's the... some Somebody else would have to be missing or somebody at some point would have to have seen them together. Yeah. And so, like, you know, her friends, when they talk about her relationship with her husband, there's some divided things. Like, some apparently said that they, they didn't like him very much. Her husband? Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. And there are other friends who are like, look, she was like a happily married, newlywed, like doing newlywed stuff. You know, she was planning a dinner party for her friends. And so would you have gone and purchased all of the stuff for a dinner party if you were planning on disappearing? No. But I mean, that goes into the same theory of like, you would somehow make yourself bleed to make it look like 
Right. A disappearance. Like maybe you would stage a dinner party the same way. But yeah. it just seems like like none of that makes any sense. Like right. she was obviously just interrupted somehow from whatever it was she was trying to do. Right. So, you know, I think with the increasing frustration of like every year passes and this case is not closed, like added to that level of frustration. And then there's like what happened to Mary. But one of the other things that did happen around this time is another woman goes missing very briefly, but she's found murdered. And this is Diane Shields, 22, of East Point, Georgia. And the reason I'm bringing up Diane Shields is that she took Mary's job at the bank. Okay. So after Mary goes missing, Diane Shields is the new Mary. So that just seems like a bank connection. Right. Also, Diane ended up living with some of Mary's old roommates from before she got married. Wait, this is getting very strange. The real piece of evidence that people were, like, panicking about as well was that Diane um, was sent five roses. Seriously. (laughs) From an anonymous sender, just like Mary had been. Um, In this case, they are actually able to trace that the roses are just from, like, a family that Diane babysits for. Okay. So, So those aren't. Right. But, like, the connections here are pretty stunning. So Diane is found... Um, murdered. Her body is in the back of her vehicle. You know, it's hard not to think of them together, but police say, like have said that these cases are not connected at all. That it's just like really like large coincidence that ties them together. There's some really big coincidences there though to mm-hmm. not even try to connect. Did they try? I mean, I think maybe I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'd be afraid to get a job at that bank after. I, I personally would not be be working at that bank. There are some differences. Like her her purse is found intact, like all that. And the fact that she is found. It is different, but at the same time. Yeah. It just seems really strange. Right. And they actually, they never solved Diane's murder either. So both are unsolved. Both worked in the same job at the same place. And both hung around with the same people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think as well, like, there are likely that these cases suffer from some, like, rapid assumptions, right? You know, like, the first assumption that Mary had to have been within 20 miles and, like, confining the search to that area right it's likely that the car stayed confined to that area but that does not mean mary stayed confined to that area right right so like concentrating their efforts in this like 20 mile radius for a good part of those early critical hours and days you know it's it's not like anyone was like where else could she have been right and did because they had the body in Diane's case, did they spend as much time trying to work through that? Or was she almost overlooked in a way? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, Diane's case fizzles out much faster than Mary's. So okay. Mary's story link lingers and it was brought up consistently year after year after year. You can kind of trace like newspaper reports throughout like the the sixties and seventies. It kind of fades away once the eighties and nineties and two thousands hits. Largely because, like, the investigators originally working her case start to retire. Right. And this becomes, like, their their one unsolved case. So in their retirement notes for a lot of these original investigators, like, this case is brought up. But, you know, it's important to note that this was was one of the biggest cases in Atlanta. There were boxes and boxes and boxes of evidence that no longer exist. They are not there anymore. They are missing. And, you know, now like Mary Shotwell Little is largely forgotten. One of the things is like, I keep on going back to like her parents saying like, no, you can't go to New York City. Right. And she would have been probably so much safer there. Like, right. Like, you can't go to New York City and Atlanta is safer. Now, like, okay, crime statistic-wise, right. like, Atlanta was safer um, at that time. Um, but that- but I'm just, like, struck by, like, they sent her in a place that they thought would be safe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what we all do for our kids, right? Right. We try to choose those things, and it doesn't always happen as planned. Yeah. That's very sad. So, Amy, do you think that Mary's case will ever be resolved? Will we ever find out what happened to her? I think that's the, like, I believe in, like, lingering hope, right? The belief that, like, something could still happen. You know, her her parents, throughout their entirety of their lives, they believed that, like, something would be resolved and that they would find out answers at some point. Um you know, the investigators in her case, like, always hoped that that something would happen. You know, and even into the, like, late 80s, early 90s, people were still calling in saying, like, I think I saw something happen. Could you investigate this to see if this was Mary? Okay. So, though those, you know, leads didn't resolve, they didn't yield answers in her case, like, there are still people who remember her and who are actively trying to think of ways to, like, bring her home. One way or another. She might be. I mean, there's no evidence that she's not alive, right? So, one... Or is there? No. I no. mean, I I think, you know, there's two quotes that kind of sum up the different feelings about this case. One is Jack Perry, who... I've been an investigator and, you know, he says, she stays with me all the time. If I were to walk up on her skeletal remains today, I would know her. I know her likes and dislikes. I know everything there is to know about her, but where she's at. Hmm. And then another detective, his perspective is different. He says, um, this is John Cameron. He says, based on my experience in these cases, I simply don't believe she's dead. Okay, so there's still hope for Mary. Right, so I think um, there's, like, two of these broad perspectives on, like, maybe what happened to her. But either case, there's still hope that it'll be resolved in some way. What about her husband? Did he still have, is he still alive? He is. Okay, does he still have hope that she's alive? 
I don't know. He has been resistant to communicating with news reports, which is understandable if so much of your early life was dominated by this major story about your missing spouse. You know, would you necessarily want to talk about it so many years later? Right. Did he hold out hope and stay like alone for a long time, just waiting for her to come back? So he received what is known as a Mexican divorce. Okay. Which is... What? what? He divorced a missing girl? Yeah, it's actually, um, in the 1960s, getting divorced was really hard, particularly getting divorced from someone who is missing and therefore can't participate in the divorce was, like, going to be next to impossible. So uh, a Mexican divorce was literally people going to Mexico to obtain a divorce. But why would that be necessary if the person is missing? Well, because, like, he can't get remarried. Uh, okay. If he's still married. Okay. So even though she's missing and not there, they are still legally married. Right. Okay. I, I. Yeah. It's sad. It is sad. So now there's like, you know, processes in the United States, like after a certain amount of time, someone's declared dead, um, which enables the spouse to. Right. I just don't, it just seems yeah. like that would be a lot because say, say your husband went missing. Mm -hmm. and years and years have passed and you're still married, it would be really painful to divorce that person. It would feel like it would feel like you're doing something wrong at that point, I think, to divorce them just to be able to be remarried. So it would almost be good if, like, after a certain number of years, that dissolved somehow. Like, uh, naturally, naturally on its own. Naturally <laughs> on its own. So then Rather you than be, having to, like, instead legally of feeling do like it. you're betraying your lost loved one. That's awful. <laughs> so he, you know, he ends up getting a divorce and he does remarry about two to three years after her. So her he clearly thought she was not alive anymore. I think, I think for him, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine what that's like. You know, they had just started their life out together and suddenly she's gone. Like all those plans that they had. Right. Yeah. Right. I'm glad that he was able to carry on with his life, but it's just the divorce part feels sad. It does feel sad. So it, it does feel like you're saying, like, I'm here and I'm I'm saying through this that I don't expect her to come back. Right. Yeah. Now we are going to listen to Amy's poem, Sinosure, read by Paige McKenzie. Paige McKenzie is a millennial hyphenate, a New York Times bestselling author, YouTuber, actor, influencer, creator, artist, and producer. Her first book series, The Haunting of Sunshine Girl, was on the New York Times bestseller list for over a month. She is a founding member of Coattails Productions with three projects in active development. Paige lives in Portland, Oregon, with the love of her life, an eight-pound chihuahua named Pongo. Sinusure. Mary Shotwell Little, 26 missing since October 14, 1965, from Atlanta, Georgia. He gives her red roses stripped of thorns, delivered in cellophane that crinkles in her hands, while she looks for the note that reads, Secret Admirer. He gives her his body pressing against hers, pressing against her car, his hand cupping her mouth, his voice in her ear asking if she recalls what it felt like when he ran his fingers down her neck. He gives her a cheek pressed against dim gray upholstery, 
her groceries rolling around the back seat, clashing into her legs, her scarab bracelet callousing her wrist. He gives her the sparkle of mile markers, a way to count the distance from her husband's hands. He gives her a green sign that announces her hometown, and because the morning sun scorches the letters, she cannot see the name, but she knows where she is, remembers the curvature of the road, the dips and rises that announce lovers' lanes, the cobbling together of buildings along the skyline. He gives her the ticking of a streetlight outside a gas station where she gets out to use a restroom, while he and the attendant holding a greasy rag watch her stumble in her bare feet, blood twirling around her knees. He gives her the percussion of rain on her body, the rivulets of water down her collarbone, the float of crisp red leaves against her wrists and across her back, the hush of roadways. He gives her the joining of body and ground. For more information about our show or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. Bye, Vanessa. Bye, Amy. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.